Welcome to the Envision Together, Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I'm your host, Pamela Mishana. Join me on this bi-weekly journey of empowerment, where you'll hear hands-on advice from lifestyle experts, educators, authors, spiritual leaders, and many more who will share tips on how to triumph personally, professionally, and spiritually. We explore timely topics such as overcoming anxiety and fear, educating the reluctant student, cultivating lasting relationships, and strengthening our faith. My hope is that the insights offered on the show will help us envision ourselves using our unique gifts and talents on greater levels for greater purposes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Envision Together, going to our next level of best. Gotta tell you, this is like one of my biggest highlights since I've started this show. I have a dear friend with me today. Her name is Tony Ann Johnson, and she is just so creative in so many different ways. I am not even going to get into it. She's experienced high levels of success. Gotta say, one of the things that I admire the most about her is not just her success as a writer. She is just an incredible person, human being. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you so much for having me. I know I I asked you if I could come on the podcast, so I appreciate that you said yes. That's a high honor. You asked me to tell your listeners about myself. So, well, the first thing I want to say is I'm on because I won the 2021 Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction, which is a pretty prestigious literary award for the short story format. So I have a book of linked short stories. It's called Light Skin Gone to Waste. It's autobiographical fiction about my family's experience as a Black family in a small white town in upstate New York in the 60s and 70s. And my book was chosen for the prize by Roxane Gay, who I admire very much. And she also edited the book. And my book before this was called Homegoing. And that also won an award. Um, It won the Accents Publishing inaugural novella contest. And then Accents Publishing published the book in 2021. That book is kind of a sequel to the one that's coming out. So Lights Can Gone to Waste is coming out October 15th. 2022 and Homegoing picks up those characters in 2006 mm-hmm. and Light Skin Gone to Waste ends in the late 70s. And before that, I was a screenwriter. So listeners may know my movie Ruby Bridges that I wrote yes. for Disney about the child who integrated the New Orleans public school system. I also was a participating writer on a big dance movie called Step Up to the Streets that financed my life for a number of years and helped me go back to graduate school to get my MFA in fiction at Antioch University. That's what allowed me to write these books uh, because I I hadn't been trained as a writer of fiction. I had been writing dramatic writing, screenwriting, mm-hmm. playwriting. So now I teach at Antioch as well. I um, I teach fiction and screenwriting at Antioch University LA where I got my MFA. Wonderful. You have such a treasure trove of experiences and expertise, and 
I've had lots of opportunities to sample your work and I am so impressed and so happy for you. That is a really big award, the Flannery O'Connor. I forgot to mention my first book, Remedy for a Broken Angel. Yes. That was my first novel. Um, that was published in 2014. I wrote that as a novel before I went to graduate school and then I rewrote it when I finished the program and it was published in 2014. And that earned an NAACP Image Award nomination for yeah. Outstanding Literary Work by a Debut Author. That's quite a prestigious award as well. And I'm so glad that you got to have that nomination and experience it. I saw the pictures of you on the red carpet when your beautiful red dress. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Well, I am so happy to have you. And I just want to tell the audience a little bit more of our history. I have known Tony over 30 years. I've met her when I was 16, before I went to college. I went to New York and I didn't know anybody. And she just took me under her wing. She became my big sister and protector and gave me information and insight about how to live in New York City. And she invited me to go to Thanksgiving upstate. And it was just beautiful. And, you know, one thing that's always struck me is that you're so beautiful on the outside. And I always pay attention because sometimes people who are as beautiful as you are on the outside don't have that inward beauty. From the day I met you, you have had both. <laughs> I was laughing because I remember me then and I remember being like protective of you. So I felt like I was kind of bossy back then. A little. Like, you, what are you doing? <laughs> a little. I mean, when I say big sister, I mean truly. I just remember, man, I was pretty bossy to Pamela. I don't know how she dealt with that. But in a protective, <laughs> loving way. So For sure. I'm honored that you are my very first fiction writer interview for my podcast. Thank you. I just love that. I have some other fiction writers coming later on, like Kimberly lawson Roby, who is a New York Times bestselling author. I'm excited for that. Exciting. But I got to tell you, having you as the first, that's a special place in my heart just because Aww, of the strength you. of our relationship. Okay. Oh, I do want to say you've always been supportive and um, just a faithful, loyal friend. I wanted to oh, thank hear you. that too. I want people to know who you are as a person and not just as an author. So let's jump into writing. So you're a successful screenwriter, TV writer, playwright, novelist, short story, and article. You've written articles for newspapers and essay writers. So why do you write? Because I have something to communicate. I have things to say, I, I don't think I've always been aware of it, but I think I've always had a sense of my a political perspective. Whenever I'm writing something, I typically write about race and some of the issues that people of color are dealing with in a dominant culture world that I feel are unjust um, and that I feel are maybe not explored as much as I would like them to be. But I have to say, you know, I started writing about these issues when I was very young. I'm going back, like my first play was 1986. And then my next play I finished in 1991. So from my perspective, I was communicating about experiences that I wasn't seeing in my world in kind of commercial work that I was seeing. And um, certainly there were writers writing about those things, but not 
specifically from the perspective that I had. I had I never saw anyone like me, a person who looks mixed race but doesn't identify as mixed race, right. a person who didn't grow up in a black community but grew up in a white community, a person with a highly educated father, a person who had traveled the world as an African American. I didn't see me yeah. in things that I was seeing. And so I wrote basically to affirm my existence, my perspective, a little bit, my anger. <laughs> I felt like I couldn't not write. And initially, I was writing dramatic writing. So initially, my thought was to write stuff for me to, to act in, because I started as a very young uh, teenager, my first acting class, I was 12. And then I took a serious acting class at 14. I went to the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And so where I was exposed to what it meant to be an artist at that age. And so I was absorbing all of that New York stuff in. I was, yeah. I was around people from the actor's studio. I met Lee Strasberg. I yeah. took seminars with him he would often communicate to his students what art was you know the art he would say the art is in the choice and so I learned about choices and specificity mm -hmm. and so I was learning how to act and how to make specific choices to make the work I was doing unique to me in some yeah. way while serving the playwright so that was kind of the beginning. And then I expanded out into writing dramatic writing because it was, you know, the, the way that I looked going back to the seventies, I would show up at auditions. At one time I went to an audition for McDonald's and the casting director was black and she was very nice, but she said to me, honey, go home. When McDonald's wants a black girl, for their ad, they want an identifiably black girl and you are not that. And so I had to begin to write things that I could play. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And I guess I probably have answered the question multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's all good stuff. And I can relate to what you're saying, especially when you started off and I think writing a lot of times for us is, is self-exploration. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know that there's universal truths and you're hoping that your work will serve society mm -hmm. in some way. I remember your what was your first play that I read was Ebony. Yeah. That's how we met. You did yeah. Ebony at the Young Playwrights Festival at Playwrights Horizons. I very clearly remember that play and Ebony... I could say Ebony was a version of you and, you know, mm -hmm. your friend C Contrell was in it and mm -hmm. the fought the distant father figure and the month, you know, I, I could see that. I saw you working those things out, working your experience out through that work. Yeah. And I find that even when I look at my work when I was younger to now, I do have these reoccurring themes. It always has a generational or cycle aspect to it. Mm -hmm. I think I've been trying to break cycles since my childhood or, or figure out how to. That is wonderful. And I know that you shared about the contest you've won and the different forms of writing that you're good at. I want to know a little bit more. With all the contests you've won or the recognitions you've gained, are any of them particularly more meaningful? I think 
the Flannery O'Connor Award is just kind of a level up from anything that's happened to me in my career before. I mean, I've I've won uh, awards for my screenwriting, and I won a fellowship to the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. So in that milieu, you know, that was a pretty significant thing. I won two Humanitas prizes. That was significant for my screenwriting. But as a fiction writer, I submit to every contest there is. And so there's a wide range of, you know, the level of respect that these contests garner in the literary world. So some of them really don't hold much weight in the literary world. And I'll still enter them anyway, because for me, it's like, well, these people will read my book. Maybe more readers will will know about me. Like, I don't discriminate. (laughs) Like at this point in my career, but the Flannery O'Connor Award is kind of for for short stories. It's it's at the the top percentage of that world. So that was a big coup for me and Roxanne Gay for me is at the top <laughs> you know yeah. the apotheosis of judges I have more admiration for Roxanne Gay than I have for Flannery O'Connor herself <laughs> um, so that was very meaningful to me that's beautiful so I want to talk a little bit about the writing process too do you have a particular writing process based on the genre you're writing in? Or let's just talk briefly a little bit about that. What's your writing process? Well, I do approach different mediums in a different way. So if I'm writing a screenplay, because of my long career as a screenwriter for hire, I always had to outline when I worked for hire because that's that's actually part of the process. So when you get hired, you have a contract, there's a series of steps and you get paid in those steps. And so you get paid upon commencement, but then the next payment is when you deliver an outline. And so I always did a three act structure outline. And so that's just been my training. And then when I began to teach screenwriting, it makes much more sense to teach students what the structure is, to have them try to approximate what the ending is going to be so that they can start their process of the character trajectory before they actually flesh out the whole script because your your character in a screenplay the protagonist has a want and a need and they're not the same thing and based on the want and the need the climax answers the question is that character going to achieve what they want and is the need going to be realized and satisfied. Mm -hmm. And so it makes more sense to plot it out and do an outline than just go, I don't know, I don't know. And write, you know, writing until you (laughs) figure it out. That in my opinion is a waste of time, but a lot of people do that. So there are plotters and pantsers and the people who just write it until they figure it out. Those are plotters and you can get brilliant work that way. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that that process doesn't work, but it it's difficult to teach that process because it's hard to evaluate. Is the student on track? I have, you know, formulated my approach is, is to outline. And some people don't like that because they think it just creates very formulaic, predictable work. I don't agree. I think that if you start with a really strong character that you are invested in, that 
has a want and a need that you remain interested in, mm-hmm. you can make that work just as surprising and wonderful as a person who's just going along and figuring it out as they go. Right. So that's one thing. Now, when I work on a short story, I don't start with an outline. I start with a character and I start trying to figure out what what's wrong with this character. What, yeah. what is upsetting their life that they need yeah. to figure out. I'll fiddle with it for a while. And then eventually I'll figure out what the story is about. And then I might outline loosely. I might figure out how I want the story to end based upon what the character's dilemma is mm-hmm. and write to that end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I heard another, another teacher, somebody I admired, um, who said that that's what Toni Morrison would say, like figure out the ending and write to that ending. And I am, you know, uh, an acolyte and admirer of Toni Morrison. So if she said that, that's good enough for me. Okay. Uh, I feel like understanding what you're writing to strengthens the writing because you're basically building the case for the ending that you're coming towards. And in a novel, I've done it both ways. So the last novel that I wrote, I actually wrote it based on a script that I had written that never sold. And the script itself became an, a sort of outline for the novel. And that was a pleasure because I, I knew where it was going, but I could go into those scenes and go deeper and create new scenes. And I knew what the next plot beat was going to be. And so I never got lost. I just discovered new areas of interest for my characters. I just had a lot of discoveries and I went off on tangents a little bit, but I knew I had to get back to where the scene ended. That really worked for me, but I hadn't actually done that in that way before. Um, So yeah. Good. You know, I do both, especially if someone's asked me to write something, I tend to do more of an outline. Uh Otherwise, I kind of go without the outline. I kind of just let the world and the characters tell me who they are. Once we're deep enough in there, I get a sense of where we're going and what the story is and what the outcome will be. It kind of takes its own shape. So this is all good stuff, Tony. I couldn't have an interview with you and not ask a question of this nature because we've both written fiction works that explore the topic of childhood sexual abuse. And for me, I wrestled with how transparent to be with my characters because while it's a made up story, a lot of the emotional journey and thoughts are mine. It's me. So the emotions of the character And there were times when I would be writing and I'd cry. So in some ways, the writing experience was therapeutic for me. And I had to really challenge myself to go ahead and be vulnerable in this space, knowing that I'm going to then open it up to the world. So I just wanted to ask you, what was it like for you writing on this topic? You're talking about the story Lucky in Light Skin Gone to Waste. It was really hard because it was based on a real event. and. Neither of my parents in real life ever really acknowledged what happened or took responsibility for what happened. And it was very painful to write about it. The event happened when I was just, I just turned eight years old Mm. and I had to, in order to write it, kind of put myself back in that situation. And because of my 
acting training, you know, being method acting. So I had to like remember the smells, what I saw, the textures, everything. Um, and so it was, it was almost a a slightly re-traumatizing, but not entirely because, you know, there's been like 50 years of distance, but I'm still wounded by the, the lack of accountability in my family. Mm -hmm. So it was hard, but I tried to write it as well as I could. I tried to write it with nuance. Roxanne Gay actually forced me to think about it, how it ricocheted into later stories, which I really hadn't been willing to do because I hadn't actually been conscious of mm-hmm. um, how I behaved as a sexual person post that assault. And the fear and anxiety that I continue to have around sex. You did a a beautiful job with that. I've read your book. It's so outstanding, this collection of short stories. And I do see a little hint of a through line in stories following uh, when you first introduced that topic. I forget the, Mm -hmm. the title of that particular story. Even in your character Maddie's, her interest in boys her thoughts about even how she looks. I think it was coming across in that also with the, you know, the aspect of being raised in a predominantly white environment. It was just so many layers of good, thoughtful reflection. And I agree with you. You don't hear enough stories about the light-skinned Black experience. You opened my eyes to truths I'm glad I know about. You helped me see through Maddie's eyes. I never considered it that way. Being a dark-skinned woman, you know, if you're Black in America, you have this force out there you have to reckon with. But even the shade of Black you are (laughs) sets up a different group of circumstances Mm -hmm. you have to work through. Dark skin is oftentimes frowned on. And so my assumption as a dark skinned person is light skinned people have it so much easier. And you really opened my eyes to the pain that someone of a lighter shade might experience. I think certainly in some situations, they do have it easier. But in a racist environment, uh, people don't care how light or if you're not white, you're the N word. So it doesn't really matter. And then also in the case of Phil's backstory, you know, being light really wasn't a helpful thing for him because his mother was more protective of the other child who was brown. You know, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the parent much more favors the light skinned child. But but that's not always the case. True. And I mean, it makes perfect sense. You almost want to say, duh. But I didn't consider that perspective. And I'm thankful you gave me a gift in being able to reflect on it in that way. Because I'm the kind of person I want to understand everybody. I'm just wired that way. I'm truly interested. And I think part of it stems from the fact, too, that I don't know. I kind of feel in my life that I want to help other people. People help me and I want to pay it forward and help other people. And you touched on one of the questions that I have coming later. So I'm going to jump to that. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to jump to the question, but I'm just going to go ahead and just ask you to expound a little bit more when you shared about Phil. I know that also Velma 
So Phil and Velma are Maddie's parents mm-hmm. and they are the ones who've experienced this higher level of success and have the opportunity to give Maddie all these amazing experiences traveling all over the world at such a young age. But then she's also still a little neglected. How has Vera's past or even issues of color affected who she is? My mother as I experienced her, had some degree of color prejudice. I had several dark-skinned boyfriends, Mm -hmm. and she would refuse to remember their names. But the light-skinned boyfriends I had, I married one of the light-skinned men. Even as he was horrible and left me, my mother was like, well, would you mind if I stayed in touch with him? Oh, my goodness. And another one who was living with me and basically using me for financial support, my mother wanted me to stay with him, too. Wow. And it was because she found them to be attractive. But oddly, I was surprised once when she told me that she thought Richard Roundtree was so handsome because Richard Roundtree was brown skin. So I don't know, <laughs> but, but she did not like my dark-skinned boyfriends. She would call them, no matter how many years I was with them, she would call them, what's his name? She married my father, I think, purposefully because she wanted a light-skinned child. She told me that she thought my father was handsome and she wanted to see what the baby would look like. An immature reason to procreate. And you know what I just realized? I said Vera, your mom's name, and I meant to say Velma. (laughs) Okay, well, I was talking about Vera. (laughs) Vera, Velma is based on Vera, but they're not identical. Um, I was talking about Tony's mother. (laughs) Right, I got you. But I do want to ask you about the character Velma as well, Uh because she comes from a mixed race background. Yes, but she didn't grow up in that manner, so... Her birth father was white, a Russian Jew, and her mother was West Indian and basically African. I've done my DNA and that woman was Nigerian, but she was raised by a Jamaican family, a black family. Um, So she doesn't have a mixed race perspective. Okay. But is she the type of character also, though, that's more inclined to prefer the lighter skin or? Yes. Well, she picks Phil you know, (laughs) who's very light. There's this old kind of propensity in the black community, like the paper bag test and the the ruler test. So your, your skin should be lighter than a paper bag and your hair should be straight like a ruler. She would agree with that. And you know, what's so funny that has affected so many of our African-American families and it's perpetuated today to such a high degree. And a lot of people are not realizing that it actually stems from slavery. The whole idea that the closer you are to white is what's right or what looks better or most attractive. My grandmother is not that light, but she comes from that era too, where there's a strong emphasis on paying attention to skin color. I never understood why you would value the oppressor's perspective and look over yourself. That just has never made sense to me. The only part of it that makes sense to me is when you've been oppressed so long, you get so defeated and you take on that slave mentality. You start to believe the lie. But I don't have that proclivity to 
be defeated. My sense is to be like, well, screw that. I saw that in the character, Maddie. And I think we're all just wired differently because when I wrestled with these things as a young person, it affected me with low self-esteem. I didn't have that oomph that you had. Well, Maddie does want to be white at a certain point because she wants to fit in. There's only white kids around her. So she does, but... I still saw a little fire in her. Yeah, but that (laughs) that is a stage that I went through because I didn't know better. I was a child in an environment with all these white people and they were kind of lauded and appreciated for their long straight hair and their flat butts and their creamy skin. And there was nobody else for me to aspire to be. And so I tried to fit in. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I could <laughs> not wait to leave. And it comes across in your in your book as Maddie <laughs> comes to these different stages in her life too. But you know what? One of the things I love about your writing, not just in this short story collection, but the um, homegoing, you do such a beautiful job just sharing these young characters' observations, and it's not in a judgmental way, it's in a very innocent way. Mm-hmm. And I think it opens up readers, like if there's readers who are not African-American and maybe they don't understand this stuff so much, you do it, it's not in a blaming kind of way, it's just in a, this is the way it is. And we see through the child's eyes, mm-hmm. just simply what she's experiencing. And I appreciated that even though I'm African-American and I get it Mm -hmm. because I believe it has the ability to open people's eyes in a sensitive, non-threatening way to reflect on what it is to experience these things. So I think that's one of the the gifts you give society is in how you wrote this. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, we can all get mad at the hurt, but at a certain point, you have to say, how do we move forward? You know, in writing these, the conclusion that I came to is it's hard for me to like hold anger towards the people who did things to me, even though the things that they did were awful. But this was the culture that we lived in. They were part of the dominant culture you know, everything that you would see, like movies, TV, the news was telling them Black people were not to be valued. Black people were criminals and low, you know, uneducated and all the things that my family wasn't. But people sometimes assumed that my family was those things without knowing us, you know? Can I just tell you, you you know my daughter, Mariva, from the minute she was born. When we go into a store, And people follow her around like she's going to steal something. It angers me to no end because she is so not that kind of personality. I know. She's the most gentle, meek, respectful, young person. (laughs) I'm not just saying that because she's mine. It's just how she's wired. That's heartbreaking to me. If I were there and saw that, I would be so angry. It does anger me and, and we would leave. I mean, can you just not observe her? You would have to see her to know what I'm talking about. But I know her. (laughs) The last time time you saw her just a few days ago, you told her that she's very elegant or something like that. She is. But do you know she's not even aware of it? But I think it's maybe it's in her DNA. The way that she carries herself reminds me of the beautiful 
long-necked women in Senegal and how statuesque they are. Like they're like models. She looks like a model. I mean, she I does model. So Reba does model, right? So she she's kind of stopped, but yes, yeah, she did okay. for a while. It's her natural carriage. So it just blows my mind how someone could look at her and then think she's gonna steal from your store. Well, that's this culture. That's the <laughs> you know, this racist culture that is still with us. So anyway, that was a little tangent. I want to ask you, so stories are somewhat spiritual to me because mm-hmm. they record the human journey and a type of spirit of the past, beginning of humanity, mm-hmm. the present, and in some ways, the future. It's what creativity is, but it can also almost sometimes be prophetic in some ways. Art and stories have lots of ways to not just document the past, but it's given a type of prophetic voice to the future. So simply through the doors of someone's imagination. So I want us to kind of think of all that. I know that was a lot, but how do you see stories and more specifically your stories as a gift to humanity? Do you believe that everyone has a story worth telling if nothing more than to be a legacy to their descendants? It's hard for me to to say, yes, I think my story is a gift to humanity because it feels to me self-aggrandizing. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think my story, it sounds like it's a gift to you. It is. Maybe it's not to everyone. I'm sure there are people who would be like, this is nonsense or, you know. <laughs> what about a sense of purpose or calling? Do you feel like when you write, there's something that you want society to gain from it. Honestly, I think that I that I'm trying to teach myself something mm-hmm. when I'm writing the story that I'm trying to understand something and figure out what I think about something and it's in executing the story that I come to understand what my perspective actually is yeah. and hopefully that translates in such a way that it's perceptive enough and it's revealing something new that is of value to the culture. I hope that that's the case. I wouldn't be so bold or confident to say that that's just the case, that that's just, you know, that every time I write a story, it's, you know, a gift. No, (laughs) sometimes I might write a story that's not that good. So no, but, but of course I'm trying to communicate something and I'm trying to understand how I feel and think about a situation and trying to illuminate it in a way that's authentic to me and unique to me. It is helpful to people who need it. I, you know, hopefully the right reader finds it and it is helpful to that person. It's, it's the thing that they need to read, you know, at that time, like there is some kind of luck and alchemy to the relationship between writers and readers and you're drawn to certain material because you're, you're seeking something and the people who aren't meant to read my book probably aren't going to read it. So so that all works out. But as to your point about, you know, just writing to leave a legacy. Yes. I do think that's a value. And I, and I regret that I didn't ask more questions of some of my ancestors. I learned a lot about my grandmother after she passed away. One of her ancestors was a hugely famous man in Bermuda, and I never heard that from her. I found it out like through genealogy. Wonderful. I like the way you explained it. And I like that you're being humble and you are humble. 
I mean it in the sense of, of a gift is really a lot of, in how you explained it. People who need to be touched by it, mm-hmm. it becomes a gift because it helps them further explore maybe something that they've been wrestling with. People can feel less alone. And then I think having the ability to write is a gift and you do it so well. So I believe that these writings, when they're released out into the world, it is a type of gift. The hope is that it will find those people that it's supposed to find and they will somehow, even if it's just, I feel less alone. Mm -hmm. I thought this only happened to me. Well, I appreciate you seeing it that way. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. We're going to talk about your recent books. Homegoing is an equally painful and funny story told with such a raw conviction as seen through uh, the young Maddie's eyes. And again, I love how you do that. I love that she's just experiencing the world without being judgmental. I touched on that. So did you really have to work on that characterization to have her innocence come across that way? So what are you talking about the stories in Light Skin Gone to Waste or Homegoing? Because in Homegoing, Homegoing Maddie... Maddie is 43 in Homegoing. She's not young. Doesn't she reflect on past events? She does, but it's but the story is told from, you know, when she's an adult. So it right. doesn't so so in Light Skin Gone to Waste, we actually see Her 6-year-old Maddie experiencing what 43-year-old Maddie was talking about. Right. Um, but Yes, I mean, I I did have to do work on it, even though it's based on me. I had to make it a character, you know, in separate from me. So Maddie in Homegoing has a different life from me. So Maddie lives in New York. I live in L.A. Maddie is a singer, a, a piano bar singer, which I'm not. She plays the piano, which I don't. So her life was distinctly different from mine, but... I made everything so familiar to me. So I set it in an apartment I did used to live in. Mm-hmm. I gave the relationship that she, that is ending attributes, you know, from my own life. So that, you know, it, it's a, it's a mixture. It is still painful, like to recall some of those past events. Like I continue to wrestle with them and there's a few more stories in light skin gone to waste that are dealing with the two characters in Homegoing, Maddie and Tobias, Tobias being her friend from childhood who was a white boy who didn't really understand that she was Black until this one day when it all came out. Yeah. So Um, so recalling that you were saying that you cry sometimes, I still cry when I recall, you know, that experience. So it is work, but I I enjoyed and appreciated doing that work. Like I don't mind crying because then I feel yeah. like I'm I'm invested and I feel connected to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like it's fun, but I feel like okay, I'm working at a level that's real if the emotion is coming up when I'm working. It was so sad because he was her best friend. And they had such a nice relationship. They were like two peas in a pod. And then one day he discovers, oh, wait a minute, I'm white and she's black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he distanced himself. But again, you shared in such a beautiful way. In Light Skin Gone to Waste, we know it's an expansion uh, into the world of the characters from Homegoing, but the title is brilliant. Like, I love this title. Thank you. <laughs> and it leaves so much room for speculation. And at a certain point, 
it's the type of title that makes you anticipate the words that are going to follow the, the book, mm-hmm. the content of the book. But as a fellow African-American, a thousand themes run through my head. And at a certain point, I was off track. You actually helped me understand what that title actually means. So will you do that for my audience? When you look at that phrase, the title of your book, Light Skin Gone to Waste, what does that mean? Um, Well, in the book, it literally means a light-skinned person who has African-textured hair or a light-skinned person who has pronounced identifiably African features. These aren't, you know, features in every part of Africa, but But what white people think of as African features, a a wide nose, big lips, what white people think black people look like. Um, That's the insult. I mean, the the phrase is meant, it's wielded as an insult to a light skinned person who's not, can't take advantage of how light their skin is because they don't, they still look black. You still know that's a black person. And you know, I was never familiar with that phrase until you... Okay title this book. So you educated me. That's so interesting because I have certainly noticed that in society, Uh but I didn't know there was a phrase around it. Right. I use the title to touch on thematically this whole family of light-skinned people. So Phil is light, Velma's light, Maddie's light, and they have this, this life in this white world but they're miserable. They're yeah. so unhappy. Um, <laughs> Phil can't get out of the marriage. He cheats on Velma. She's miserable in the marriage. You know, they they have money, they have success, they have things, but they don't have happiness or inner yeah. peace. You know, so it's like they ascend and do this social climbing, and for what? Yeah, it's really, a better life than if they had stayed in a black community. Right. I don't know. I don't think so, but. They might say so. It wasn't for me. <laughs> and I love that. I love that you opened my eyes to that. Because mm-hmm. I think we do. If it hasn't been your experience, how can you know unless someone educates you? And that's, again, why I talk about writing being a gift. The assumption, if you're living in this upstate, well-to-do, affluent area, oh, your life is just so fabulous. But the thing is, that area wasn't well-to-do or affluent. But to working class with some people with money, but Monroe is not, it never was like a rich area. It's not Greenwich, Connecticut. Right. It's like firemen, cops, working class people for the most part. It's some professionals with money, but it's definitely not overall a wealthy area. In fact, they could have afforded, Phil and Velma could have afforded a more affluent area. They chose to be affluent around white people who weren't on their social level, who didn't have their education. That's an interesting choice. But in their minds on some level, it's still a step above because we're not in the ghetto black area. Or At that time, there were affluent, even African-American neighborhoods. Yes! (laughs) And I didn't know that. I had no idea about that until I was an adult. I have relatives who were part of the Black elite. They had a house in Sag Harbor, still have that house. And I went there when I was a little girl, but I didn't know what I was seeing. I went back when I was 20 years old, and there were these rich, young Black kids driving Mercedes and Jaguars and Porsches 
and living in these beautiful big houses and going to elite schools. And I was furious because <laughs> I did not meet them growing up. They, my cousins were in Jack and Jill, which is a, a black elite yeah. social organization. My father was did never introduce me to Jack and Jill. I never went to any events. I never met middle-class black people wow. as a kid. So my parents made me think we were some kind of anomaly. Like, mm-hmm. like there weren't other black people. Left. There were plenty of communities within a 60 mile radius of where we lived that we could have lived mm-hmm. where there were other black people that were educated and had money. Phil seems a little more infatuated with the white world yes. than he, he is. Delma. <laughs> he is. This was a long running argument between my father and I, you know, until almost till his death. He liked Monroe. So did, so did my mother. They enjoyed that world. Wow. That's something. This book really expands the way readers reflect on the plight of African-Americans and the mental health issues that stem from simply being Black and the obstacles that have, um, have to be overcome because of it. Things like just wanting a better life, achieving success, but not being able to experience that success at the same level of peace that some races enjoy. We touched a little bit on that stuff, so you don't have to give us more about that part of it. But mm-hmm. were you in- intentional in drawing out these issues in the story that correlates with so well with even our climate today and society? Just the issues that Black people are having a different experience in societies where there's a dominant yeah. culture. I wasn't thinking quite that broadly. I was really thinking specifically about Phil's psychological experience and Velma's and Maddie's um, and to some degree uh, Emily's, the grandmother. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really thinking about, you know, the overarching mental health issues, but Phil is a mental health professional. Right. And so Maddie growing up in a family where that's the business, she's kind of attuned to it. And as a writer, and as, you know, somebody writing autobiographical fiction, writing these characters, kind of trying to find empathy for why they were the way they were, it was kind of inevitable that I had to explore the depths of like, what made them the way they are. How did they come to have that perspective? Why? What were the things that happened in their life that, that led them to that? And how is it manifesting in, you know, in their life now? Um, so it was more about the specific characters and, and exploring those characters. And I do that, I think, in everything that I write. So yeah. Remedy for a Broken Angel was also exploring the psychological reasons for certain behaviors. Yes, uh, we share that in common. Yeah. The psychological journey of the characters is very uh, important and present in the work. I found it ironic, Phil's job as a therapist, and yet so many issues going on right under his own roof, and he's not addressing it. He kind of ignores it. Mm. That's my observation of what actually happened. And the thing is, you were probably right on because it's been a long time coming that the African-American race have even embraced this whole idea of needing help with mental health. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that got started, but 
we would literally say, well, you're, if you can't handle life, you're just crazy. We didn't have space for each other to need help in that way. That's funny that you say that because that's what Phil says that his mother and brother said about his interest in pursuing psychology. They're like, black people don't go to psychologists yeah. and, and white <laughs> people aren't going to go to a black one. But I think that's where Phil's light skin worked to his advantage in mm-hmm. that he was so light that I'm not sure that it was always immediately apparent to everybody what his race was until they, you know, got to know him better. But yeah, I I have to give some admiration to my father for even pursuing a psychology degree in the 50s. Oh yeah. Um, because who knew that that black psychologists could be successful? That was a risk. I applaud him for that too and you certainly feel proud of these characters. You re- you really experience a range of emotions reading these short stories. Mm-hmm. You're proud of them, but then you're like, oh, come on. Come on, don't you get it? Help Maddie. And also get it together. Stick together. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. You're proud and disappointed. Well, that's <laughs> life, right? But I want to talk a little bit more about this whole aspect of mental health. So Maddie, for a myriad of reasons, um, you would say some of it is neglect from her parents. Some of it is living in this predominantly white area and feeling like an outcast, being outcast, not having an opportunity to realize how beautiful she is because she's around people that view her as not, not beautiful because she doesn't line up with the white standard of beauty mm-hmm. uh, for that community. What would you say, speak as your, just yourself, Tony, mm-hmm. what would you say to people out there that's wrestling with stuff like that? And what are some things that you found helpful to kind of help you walk through experiences like that and come to, you're at such a healthier place today. Not that you don't still. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier that. now. I think that there's more of a, you know, the book takes place in the 60s and 70s. And it wasn't that common to see Black people on TV or in movies like for the age that Maddie was because the movies, you know, black exploitation movies, like I, I wasn't allowed to go see coffee when I was a little girl. Like, it, you know, it, it was too adult for me. So I remember there was a show that I tried to watch, Get Christy Love, and it was on, like, I guess late, and I could never stay awake, but I knew it had a Black protagonist. Kids now have had Obama. I work with a lot of young people, Mm -hmm. and the ones that I'm around, they're not experiencing it the way you're saying, like, it's easier. They're still wrestling with a lot of these issues. Really? Yeah. So okay, but they have so many more. I mean, there are so do. many more people of color that are that are valued and deemed worthy, mm-hmm. smart and talented and beautiful. Like Beyonce, like who's more beautiful? Who's lauded more <laughs> for her beauty and talent than Beyonce? You know, like um, but what so I don't know. It's just it a black girl like that looks nothing like Beyonce. Okay. Beyonce still fits those standards to some extent yeah all I can say is that you have to find the beauty in yourself and you have to value yourself and not look for and this is easier said than done but you have to not look for that validation outside of yourself but it has to come from within and then if you carry yourself like you love yourself 
it forces the world to change. Like look at Lizzo. Lizzo with her big body is like, I am fine. I look good, you know? And and we say, you know what? You do. So what were some of those things that helped you start doing that inner transformation? I don't know. I think it was really just leaving Monroe. You know, so Mm -hmm. I graduated early. I left Monroe. I went to New York, New York City, and I started working as an actress in the Black New York community. Mm -hmm. And I was validated by my peers. Like, people told me I was pretty. Like, I rarely ever was told I was attractive that in my recollection in Monroe. In New York, you know, boys were interested in me. I didn't have a lot of attention from boys in Monroe. And the ones who did want to pay attention to me, I was afraid, especially if they were white, because I had had that serious rejection in my childhood. I didn't want to subject myself to another white person who's going to bring me home and somebody was going to call me the N-word. So I wasn't, you know, trying to pursue that. It started with a change in environment, but then it was just growth. Like, I don't think I felt really good about myself until I was in my late Mm forties. So that's quite a long time. Me too, by the way. (laughs) And then I was like, you know, not as not so cute because I was getting wrinkles and gray hair. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, hmm, I'm not so bad. And girl, you still look so beautiful. Just touch up your appearance in Zoom. I don't look like this. (laughs) And a ring light. Nobody would know your age. So we said earlier we met when I was 16. And you would have had to be, what, like 24 or something like that? I refer to you as my big sister. But, you know, at a certain point, I was like, dang. Now I look like the older sister. No, you don't. I'm like, what's up with that? This woman doesn't age. Well, (laughs) filters help a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You're being very modest, Tony. And I also wrote those anti that anti-aging book. (laughs) Yes. We didn't share about that. You eat so well, so I have to give you your props. You you actually do you take care of yourself better than I've done with myself. I thank God though, because I think we both look uh, younger than we actually are. (laughs) I think so too. How might the collection of stories display your sense of purpose as a writer? Well, I guess it just goes back to what I was saying before, like trying to communicate my perspective and trying to understand what I think about the experience that this family went through. So I think, you know, I do feel like my purpose is to explore ideas about race and class. And so I'm not sure how well that that actually came off because a lot of people seem to misunderstand the class aspect. So I was trying to show that Maddie's family was actually upper middle class and a lot of the people around her who were white were not upper middle class. They were working Working class. class. And I was trying even through language to communicate that. And sometimes people were like, editor, why are they talking like that? Like, why are you dropping the G? Because that's how they talk. (laughs) That's how I hear working class speech Mm-hmm. you know, is different from an upper middle class person's speech. The, it's different from the daughter of a PhD speech. Mm-hmm. If your father only went to high school, it's a different thing. So part of my purpose in this book is, you know, to communicate my observations about the experience of race and class and the assumptions that people make surrounding race and class. I felt as a person of color in this white environment that people typically assumed that my family was poor or they assumed that my parents weren't educated 
or they assumed that I hadn't traveled. You know, there were a lot of assumptions that were made about what my experience was just because I wasn't white. And so part of what I was trying to do was show like, no, this is their experience and it's real and it's authentic. Just because you as a white person from the dominant culture aren't familiar with right. me does not mean I don't exist or right. that I didn't have this experience mm-hmm. in this country at that time. I'm not sure that I was you know, as aware or specifically of it being my purpose. This is just one book in an array of things that I write. So I don't, I don't know if I saw it as my overall purpose, but for this book, I was looking at race and class and sexual abuse and narcissism, which we haven't talked about. So both parents are kind of somewhere on the spectrum of narcissism. And that has an effect on the child. It's a, it's a very different experience if you have a narcissistic parent than if you have a healthy and emotionally healthy parent to guide you. Children of narcissists often have to parent themselves. What do you see as the biggest obstacles to writers getting their stories told or recognized by traditional publishing houses? A couple of things. One is I think that some people think that just because they want to write a story that they can or that just because they want to write a story, they actually have the acumen to write literature. So I think some people feel that their work is ready for the literary world, and it isn't. That's one set of circumstances. Then I think some people, it's just harder. It's hard to break into finding an agent. Right. It's, it's hard to get an agent especially if you're not in a literary community. I mean, you, you can query agents, but even some of the, the most brilliant writers out there have difficulty finding an agent. So if you're a new writer, an emerging writer, it can be hard to get to an agent and kind of the only way to get to traditional publishing, the big five, is to go through an agent. That's a barrier. I know this woman who has a book coming out She's a really talented writer and her book sold, but she was rejected by 49 agents. 50th agent said yes. And her book was sold in a bidding war to a big publisher and it's coming out. It's hard. But that said, it's possible. For my students, I recommend contests. It wasn't an agent who sold my book. The contest sold my book. All three of my books have been sold outside of the traditional publishing world. It's possible. (laughs) Very insightful. Well, with all of my guests on Envision Together, I always ask the same final question, and it's this. Which one final gem can you leave with our audience today? The single most important idea shared that if people don't remember anything else you said, please don't forget this, and it'll help them go to their next level of best regarding our topics of discussion today. Well, I would say that I'm specifically talking to artists, whether you're an actor, a writer, a painter, whatever you are. What I would say is be authentically you. Communicate through your art something that only you could create. So only you could write this thing. Only you could play this particular part in this way. Only you could paint this painting. And I came to this from after learning 
something that the painter Charles White would say to his students in the beginning of his semester. He would ask them, where do you come from? Why are you creating the art you're creating? And how do you know who you are? And so I answer those questions for myself. So where do I come from? Well, that's what I've been writing about for the last like 10 years. The last couple of books that have come out are where do I come from? Why am I creating the work that I'm creating for what we've talked about, you know, to communicate, to shed light? And how do I know who I am is my work shows me who I am. And so I feel like that's something that artists could think about. And I wish I had had those questions you know, maybe 30 years ago when I was like a new artist to just keep them in mind as far as like, what should I be creating? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times artists don't give themselves permission to create something that really comes from them because they feel like they want to sell. And so they, they look at what's selling. They try to emulate what somebody else has done. I think it's more fulfilling and more authentic as an artist to allow the work to come up and through you and your real experience. I love that. It reminds me, my first writing instructor, the one who I sat under his tutelage when I wrote my first play, Ebony, which you were an actress in, off-Broadway. That's how we met. I think we touched on that earlier. He always told me, write what you know. Mm -hmm. And those three uh, reminds me of that. What I'm saying is a, is a little bit different than write what you know, and that's a much longer conversation because I think you can research and write something that you don't know, but something of you should come through in that. I think that people get caught up on write what you know as like it can only be something that's happened to you, which I don't agree with. I think that it should be something of you should be in the characters. You know, I could research a science fiction world or build a science fiction world that I don't know and still have it be authentic. When I hear write what you know, I think all the things you just said. So Mm -hmm. I just, I think it's how you receive those words. Some people do get confused by those words and and get stuck there and think, Mm -hmm. but what if I want to write about something I don't know. I think that you can write about something you don't know if you research it and use something authentic to you to communicate that story in that setting. That's right. We agree. Yeah. Because I write about topics and my character in Girls in Search of Cover, Mm -hmm. I have not experienced those things. I'm in there. We have the same understanding, but I get your point that some people may not extract that from the statement right no, and I got that from your book I felt the the authenticity in your book and I was just gonna ask you that off the cuff I was gonna mm-hmm. say do you feel that girls in search of cover comes across that way the way you just explain things I do there were elements of the book that you did know so there were things that you didn't know experiences that the protagonist has that you may not have had but you could move through the experience as if it were you, as if it were happening to you, how would I act if I were this person in this circumstance? And that made it believable to me. And what helped me is I knew people who had experienced things like that, had conversations with them. And it's like acting. You take your emotion and you put it in that situation. Exactly. It's like method writing. Yeah, method writing. (laughs) We should write a new book. (laughs) Nonfiction. Okay, so share any information you would like to share about how my audience might contact you, get a hold of your books. 
it's available on Amazon. It's available on barnesandnoble.com. It's available on Bookshop, pretty much all of the online places where you buy books. And in some select bookstores, um, it'll be available as well. And people can find me at my website, which is www.tonyannoejohnson.com. And then I'm also on Instagram as Tree Lady Tony Ann and on Twitter at Tony Ann Johnson. Wonderful. I am so happy, so excited that we had this opportunity to get together. And again, it's really special to me that I did my first fiction author interview with my longtime sister friend, Tony Ann Johnson. I'm so humbled and honored to have you on. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And I know my audience will be able to grab some good nuggets. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I should come back and interview you about your book. That's a great idea. We'll have to set that up. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that before, but I'm game. Okay. Well, somebody okay. should interview you. Why not me? <laughs> that would be great. That I really like that idea. Let's make it happen. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Well, friends. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Envision Together Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I hope today's topic inspired you to envision a brighter future getting to your next level of best and to urge others to reach theirs as well. If you are encouraged by today's episode, subscribe and share it with your family and friends. Also, please write a review. It will help me to reach a wider audience with a message of hope and inspiration. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share your thoughts about today's episode. Until next time, envision the future you want to see.